Welcome to Aeolian Broadcasting, a podcast exploring the poetic forms, cultural genesis, and the secret winds that shape them both. In this episode, me and Adam are discussing the enigmatic poetry of Lisa Robinson, specifically the poems First Spontaneous Horizontal Restaurant and A Hotel. A Canadian-born poet and essayist, Robinson's poetics stuns and jolts the mind with exquisite fabrication. Her poems cross the interwoven boundaries of metaphysics, Epicureanism, history, aesthetics, language, feminism, politics, the body, and much more. In these poems, Lucretius is our Virgil and Beatrice, carefully holding our hand and taking us along for all the aforementioned. Language is not just the ornamental for Robertson. It's a vessel of the sacred materiality of language. The words on the page become a horophony. We, the readers, are thrown into the flowing, swirling, folding of space of language, and we hope our discussion can help traverse these inexplicable matters. I think it's probably fair to start with a disclaimer that... uh, I have a fair bit more of an extensive kind of background in in Robertson. Not to sound like I have any kind of actual extensive background in Robertson, but just to say that I've read a bit more and written and studied a bit more. So if I make any statements that sound overly declarative and confident, then that's why. Did you enjoy her? Yeah, yeah. Poetry? Yeah, I did. I felt perhaps I'm not too well like uh, read within modern poetry or contemporary poetry um but she's she's been around for what quite a while since the what late 80s 90s or something i think so yeah but, but this co- collection magenta soul whip is um like 2009 i think um but yeah i, I did I, I really did enjoy it. it it did test me it made me think a lot <laughs> yeah um more so she has a weird um she has a weird cadence doesn't she i think i think that's the thing that fi- that kind of a lot of people that i know who have tried to read her and talked about her yeah found quite odd there is um, like a perfect not saying poetry needs a perfect sort of rhythm and syn- syntax to it but she seems to be playing off of sort of strangeness and a sort of like enigmatic ways of you know, writing that kind of stuff down on the page. Uh, sort of. I think that's a nice way of putting it because it's it's this the strangeness aspect. It's not only like it's not only the content that's kind of quite elusive, but her tone is quite jarring in places and um, almost confusing. I think the way that she plays with kind of dissonance of tone and um, uh, dissonant. Um, linguistic registers uh i think it'd be fair to say i think basically i think it in order to talk about how her poetry is structured i think we kind of need to talk about uh epicurean metaphysics tom (laughs) um yes because yeah let shall we (laughs) um because i mean shall i do this or should i will will uh we can share the, the burden of this, but yeah, I was. Uh, I did a bit of a research into it. I read a bit of. She references Lucretius a lot. She she has these sort of like um, recurring characters or themes 
of these characters within her poems, like um, like Baudelaire pops up at one point, um, Lucretius, even you know Jesus Christ is there at one point. Uh, mm. We only got poems, but they're you know I, you know because I was interested, and they're almost like essays in themselves, they're like sort of um, idea poems. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but I guess that's why having the background context of Epicureanism will definitely mm. help us flesh out sort of like um, the whole discussion. So I think Epicurean metaphysics is, is, is important to understand in terms of talking about her kind of poetic structure. Um, Epicurus being a, uh, an ancient Greek philosopher. Um, Hellenic. <laughs> Hellenic philosopher, there we go, um, who was essentially deified in his time, kind of had this very uh, influential philosophy that was kind of ultimately lost for about a thousand years um, when all records and, and documents of it sort of just kind of dissipated until it was found again by, um, I can't remember the name of the guy, but it was in in uh, a monastery uh, in in or somewhere near Rome um, and the Roman poet Lucretius was kind of uh, found himself upon it um, and wrote on the nature of things, which became, which is, which is the kind of vessel through which we have Epicurean metaphysics. Um, the sort of central tenet of it being that reality is, uh, is a kind of cascading rainfall of atoms drifting through through the ether um, and these sort of random events called that he refers to as the swerve or swerves um, occur whereby atoms essentially in their course, their downward trajectory through the ether kind of collide into each other randomly and, and in theory kind of like unsolicited um, and that gives rise to phenomena. And that's kind of how we have the world. Um, and I think the, that just on a very surface aesthetic level is a really nice, I mean, very obviously intentional image that Robertson is kind of establishing with her poetic structure in that it consists of almost, if not atomic, then sort of aphoristic um, chunks, little sort of um, building blocks that literally if you want to be, if you want, if you want to get literal on it, drift down the page, uh, and in the course of their sort of drifting, then these sort of constellations of meaning emerge through these sort of disparate uh, tones and registers and concepts, kind of like coming into into contact with each other, essentially. Um, so there's kind of this this sort of perspective. It I, for me, it kind of it, it makes it very perspectivist. It sort of induces this. Uh, this feeling and phenomenon within the reader of kind of, I know she's a word that she uses a lot when I've seen her talk about talking in interviews is kind of cosmology and constellations and things. I know she's interested in that kind of, uh, the idea of random alignments and kind of um, viewing from a perspective, giving this sort of, giving a meaning that wouldn't be apparent from another perspective, basically. And so just this idea of reading her poetry being like 
sitting and looking into this rainfall of atom, atoms and concepts that kind of uh, form patterns and form meanings through the way that they're kind of drifting past you and the way that they come into contact with each other. Um, on a very surface level, I think that's kind of the main layer, on, the first layer on which she kind of starts to take Epicurean metaphysics for her, for her poetic structure. Um, yeah, I was um, the the idea of like atoms falling through space, a sort of like molecular thing, isn't it? You know, um, what Epicurean was talking about was that there was a the planet has a certain amount of like void and like empty space to it, you know, and that could also be contextualized in the sense of like you know space between the words on a page. And um, so uh, the atoms, they fall through the void. And because there is space within the void that creates uh, movement. So life is sort of like we're in a sort of state of constant movement and uh, uh, complex motion governed by the, uh, in Epicureanism, governed by the three motor principles of weight, collision and um, minimal random movement, which is the swerve. And these things, yeah, create what you're saying. And this like gives away to life and kind of gets rid of the idea of like determinism, right? So it's sort of like everything is opened up to, I guess, almost like random events, but not really. But yeah, I guess the question is, isn't it, what what is the determining force? Because it's that idea of it being like, like the Schopenhauerian will, it's metaphysically primary. Yeah. So like, there's a lot of obviously different readings and interpretations of like, what what is the swerve? Like what causes the swerve? Sure. And I think it then becomes like a kind of medium for her to discuss or it kind of, I think it basically, it feeds into the sort of political, social um, agenda of her poetry and her, her understanding of art, because it addresses the issue of the, firstly, the distinction between uh, totally isolated and separate and distinct entities, i.e. atoms, or, you know, in the social sense, people, and the conditions by which, and the possibility of them interacting um and the 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 possibility of the creation of sort of social cohesion if you want to extend the kind of Lucre uh, epicurean metaphor of like atoms colliding giving rise to phenomena then sort of people colliding and cohering and falling into sync in the right way creates is social cohesion she talks about that in um i think it's a hotel the mm first one we're doing i don't know anyway she talks about she's like she always references the ideas of utopias and or just like utopia in general and she talks there's this quote she's like utopia is so emotional i'm speaking of the pure sexual curves of utopia the rotation of its shadows against the blundering civitas so i was looking up what civitas means and civitas is an old uh, uh cicero who was a sort of like a Roman senator, a really good like orator. And um, he, he said that during the Roman Republic, the, we had the idea of a social body called a civitas, right? Uh, civis, which were citizens by law 
are united uh, through certain laws that bind them together, giving them responsibilities. And also that gives them rights of citizenship. It's also sort of like pre-social contract, you know, of like a Rousseauian sort of social con- social contract. There, there is no separation between the civilian as or the civvies uh, as like a collective body and them as a sort of like binding con- uh, contract that binds them. There's this, uh, they have to work together to make a certain city. Uh, mm. And I just... Um, what you were saying kind of reminded me of that. It's like, you know, uh, you need certain uh, rigidity, I guess, to space and time. But there's also, mm. um, you know, randomness to getting to a certain, like, place like that, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like the contingency yeah. intrinsic to... Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's another thing that she's definitely massively interested in. I think it's like the contingency of, of human evolution and social evolution. And she's, and she's a historian almost like she's, she, yeah. Like, it takes a lot from the pound, like pounds idea of like contextualizing poetry with the rest of history. Mm. The idea that it's, poetry is a sort of like, like cosmology of everything you know <laughs> yeah it's it's fucking verbose about it or whatever but like yeah after pound everything you know kind of i mean not like it didn't beforehand but pound for like his idea that history was so sort of like intrinsically beautiful and connected to poetry and yeah i see a lot of that within lisa robertson's work she's like She's a poet, obviously, but she's also a historian. She's also like a philosopher. She's also an artist, I think. Like a lot yeah. of poetry does remind me of a sort of like abstract expressionist artist. Um, sort of like flinging paint and ideas onto a, a page and then loosely connecting them together through, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, just like syntax and ideas, you know, and the sort of like free association of that. I think she's interested in deep history and how the systems that we have in place today, be they social or cultural or political or, you know, in broader senses, kind of just biological ecosystems, extend back through time all the way to the beginning of time um and the idea that you can't i mean it, it, it she she does she does take that whole systems theory thing that you, you you can't talk about what uh one aspect of human being without talking about the microbiota of you know the 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 the, the prebiotic sludge of, yeah. of a deep time i think um there's a there's this section in um yeah there's a section in uh first spontaneous horizontal restaurant the the other uh, poem that we were discussing let's take the totality of an animal some bone blood in the veins heated fluid of the gut nerves weaving a form fattening some method finally you see corpulent color tasting and absorbing dirt and a language suspends itself as if falling it's just this it, it is literally the de- it's the deep evolution of kind of of the human being essentially 
And this specific bit, and I love that for some reason, and a language suspends itself as if falling. It's just one of my favorite mm. lines of poetry because it captures just like so many things. I think it, it captures the contingent relationship between, no, sorry, the in, in e, deeply inextricable relationship between human evolution, human material and uh, biological evolution and the development of language and the contingency of the structures of language in relation to that. Um, so there's, I'm going to, I'm going to, I was, I wasn't even sure if I was going to try and talk about this because it took me a very long time to get my head around, <laughs> but in um, the interview that you linked me to geomantic slumber. Yeah. Yeah. She reads a quote where she talks about ontological choreography and she talks about ontological choreography as the play with the histories of body and mind that the players inherit and that they rework into the fleshy verbs that make them into who they are. This game remodels them. It always comes back to the biological flavor of the words. And it kind of, it just, it relates back to this idea that I've kind of been interested in for a while of the sort of biological physiological and phenomenological foundation of sort of language essentially she talks about um she kind of starts this discussion by talking about how basically obviously all language is metaphor all and by and by you know to take that deeper all kind of conceptualization and abstraction is metaphor in that it's the it's the structuring or the establishment of an analogous structure to our experiences that is analogous in that it shares some inherent sort of fundamentally similar characteristic with our experiences in order to be able to kind of see them better or like interact with our world better um it's a tool basically is is what i'm saying it's a, it's a representational tool and she's kind of dealing with this idea that all language is in its nature as a tool. It all stems from the attempt to um, mediate between the individual as a physically self-contained and sovereign and uh, self-responsible kind of whole and the world around it. The quote you read from, it reminded me of a sort of like human topological map of history. Honestly, the, the layers of what a human is can be meta, like there's a, the allegory of like hum, like history as like a sort of like time and progression. You know, what is history bar, you know, a certain amount of events? What is a human being bar the blood and uh, bones and fiber uh, muscles that make up a body? You know, what, 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 you know, it, it's like, it almost deconstructs the idea of what a human being is to its fundamental points. You know, maybe that's what history also, but <laughs> probably not. <laughs> um, I don't know. It was just kind of like it, it, it made it a sort like made it a thing of like occasions, you know, uh, what history is or what is. It's just like a, a massive amount of occasions brought in by everything you know the occasions of events of everything of man animal you know plant and i think that speaks to the fact that obviously 
this is kind of the essence of what she's saying that embodiment is embodiment in a human body <laughs> is the, is the transcendental signifier of all language as metaphor mm. so uh how, how uh, your comment that uh it's the idea of uh human history as this kind of topography or this or this deep deep strata this deeply strated layered um piling up of sequence of, of events that have all inscribed themselves on our body but they've also inscribed themselves in our language mm. through our body and through our body's interactions i'm going to give an example just because i know it gets quite hard to talk about but like so basically i think what she's talking about in this quote that i read from the uh what's it called the the, the geomantic slumber is the idea that kind of as i said all language began with the necessity of preserving the se the self within the world basically language was uh, a tool of this self of the self-contained physical body um and you can see that in like the oldest earliest forms of language and also in like linguistic structures so one like cool example that i remember coming across ages ago and in, in something else i was reading that just it was standing out to me is the idea of the, the, the etymology of the absolute, the word absolute. So like the idea of the transcendent, the infinite, the, the everything outside of the self. Um, and the etymology is abs is off and solve is to loosen. So the absolute and the infinite, the transcendent is everything that is loosened off from me or from which I as a physical totality that you know I must preserve and sustain sustain am loosened off from so like it it's it directly referential to the idea of me as a self-contained physically self-contained unit mm. if that makes sense yeah um and what I'm getting at with that is that it's obviously not only the word but the concept itself is very like significant in human history the concept of the absolute and it comes directly from this experience of ourselves as an embodied uh physically se physically separated um individual entity um is that like looking at the body in a sort of gestalt like uh the body as a sort of production of parts or is the body a production of language i think it's both yeah it's it's the the body is the body exists in its relation to the world mm -hmm. um but we only experience ourselves as a closed off part of that world and language is the attempt to mediate that relation yeah because this is another thing that I think is extremely important in our poetry is the is the is the relation of the individual to the transcendent to the whole. Yeah. And this obviously comes into like everything we were talking about, like the, your example of the civitas mm -hmm. of society. It's uh, how do we how do we uh, mediate between ourselves and an individual as an individual and the whole in such a way to develop a whole that is good for every individual. Um, and this, I think, is where it gets into, like, her, 
her her social understanding of the importance of art and like because I know we talked very briefly in the last episode about um what I did at least uh Robertson's conception of architecture and how architecture works in terms of it being a reified solidified set of intentions and dispositions that are made actual and that are therefore like manifested in the world and perpetuated if that makes sense so you know how a house is laid out will speak directly to how you would live within that house which then informs how you would act and be within the world in a lot of ways in terms of your relation to mm. space and society and people. Um, and importantly, sharing an architectural space with another person is a social act in, in, its, in, in that it enables and perhaps necessitates the sharing of those intentionalities and those dispositions it grounds a shared experience of the world in terms of the activities and the behaviors that can be enacted within it um and the activities and the behaviors that might potentially be enacted within it it sort of it starts to craft your kind of way of being within the world um and this for her is i think the structure of how art works art is a she, she has this kind of recurring concept in her other sort of stuff of the surface um and the surface as a point of it's, it's a, like an intentional reflexive structure of occupation that can be in it that can be um say simultaneously inhabited by multiple individuals and thereby their uh the firm structures of their individuation can kind of become a bit more permeable through their sharing of the intentionalities and the dispositions and the sort of sensitivities and sensibilities that are contained within both the piece of art and the sort of architectural structure. Is this making any sense? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Yeah. I'm just uh, I'm listening. <laughs> I'm trying to think, yeah. Um, it, it, it sounds very similar to what well, not what you were just saying, but earlier as like when you share a space in a house with someone, mm. it sounds like a micro micro like scopic uh, version of the civitas. You know, you, you kind of enter in a certain space and you have, you've been given a certain amount of responsibilities via being born into a city in this sense being into a it, it, you know putting you know putting down a deposit for a fucking flat or something you know you've been given a certain amount of responsibilities as a, a person entering a certain space that's being created for living and you know being essentially i think on a more fundamental level the house and i guess ultimately also the society if it's appropriately designed can uh can craft you can determine your your potentialities can determine the ways in which you can potentially inhabit the world because it's this this again this baccalardian sense that yeah. the space that you inhabit determines how you see space and how you think about space you know your attitude and your relation to small spaces big spaces the way that certain spaces with certain functions connect to other spaces with certain functions. Um, 
and how it's a visual, it becomes almost like a visual representation of a civitas. What are the moving parts of the world and how do we connect them? And how do we feel about those connections? Mm. Um, architecture can kind of make all those things manifest. Yeah. Um, and can kind of dictate them or guide them or help craft them. Not for sure. Um, and I think that this is basically how she wants to see. And this is why the word civil comes up. And this is why, like, again, the, the civitas. But she talks about arts, civil duties, um, art as a kind of a civil act, because art can, the sharing of a, of an aesthetic space, as in looking at a painting, for example, with someone next to you, you are both entering into and trying to, if not adopt at the very least, kind of commune with the aesthetic sort of dispositions. So what, what you were saying, it reminds me of the essay, uh, the Walter Benjamin essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. And the idea mm. that there was a, you know, and art was a sort of ritual kind of thing. It had an aura to it and you would see it in um, the place that it was made for, i.e. like a church or, you know, it wasn't this uh, kind of thing that could be moved from um, art museum to art museum and then also mechanically reproduced into postcards or um you know, photographs and stuff like that, you know, um, it, it kind of reduces the aura of the art itself and the, the area and space that the art was made to inhabit. And, you know, today you can, you know, it's almost like the essay is more viable now with the whole like NFT craze and all that stuff. Um, you know, how, the it doesn't matter about the aura of the thing anymore it matters more about the um the idea of well the the more it's like flaunting you know it, it, the more you can flaunt something the more of a sort of value i guess it has onto you know it as a piece of art you know because it is just a reproduction of an art piece that's in a museum right so the idea with an NFT now is that you will get this uh, piece of, you know, digitized art. You'll have it, you pay a certain amount of, you know, Ethereum fruit for that. And then um, you would just have that piece through smart contracts, blah, 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 a lot of boring crap. It would be yours, you know? And, you know, also the same idea, you go to a museum, you go to the little postcard section you buy a two pound postcard of a, you know, Botticelli work, it's going to be yours, but it's not the, the, the artwork itself isn't, you know, but this is the idea of like NFTs on the, you know, that people were thinking about destroying actual pieces of art to then just have the NFT as a yeah. piece, but it, it gets rid of the aura and what Walter Benjamin was saying that, you know, once you can do that, you can manipulate art to be political as well. You can politicize artworks when you have it taken, when the aura is kind of taken away from it and extracted from it, 
also this kind of goes back to the beginning of what we were talking about and the idea of epicureanism so epicureanism is also the idea that pleasure pleasure is like the the top thing you know the the surmounting of life should be towards pleasure and not pleasure in a sort of like sexual domain or the eros of pleasure just like pleasure in the sense that you shouldn't be unhappy and uh, there's the the really nice quote at the beginning of the spontaneous horizontal restaurant from epicurus the cry of flesh is not to be hungry thirsty or cold for he who is free of these and is confident of remaining so might even vie with zeus for happiness i think contained within that within this idea of because I think obviously with the first spontaneous horizontal restaurant, the, the I wouldn't say it's even a metaphor, I think she means it quite literally, but her kind of position is that hunger is what drives and motivates individuals on, an, on, a, on a microcosmic level, but also in kind of much, much yeah. broader senses in terms of social development. And I think it, it kind of becomes that sort of, not negative philosophy, but uh, an incorporation of the idea that an understanding of what we lack is is what she means by uh, the uh, by hunger being the motivation, mm-hmm. because seeking pleasure is equally uh, trying to fill the void that you feel within yourself, and I think. Um, she says, and because I think this is compacted in her like understanding of basically resistance is as important to kind of utopia, yeah, um, yeah. and social cohesion as everybody being happy, <laughs> as like smooth and easy life. Um, so she, in in the in the kind of bit just after what you read, um, I want to study the refreshing flora within resistance. I want to relax also. I want health and resistance to tarry in synesthesia. So I think she understands the complexity. I think, what's this specific quote? Uh, yeah, some describing a politics of mixture, resistance and complexity. I think that kind of sums her up quite effectively that she understands that, I mean, for me, it becomes almost that uh, dialectical conception of, of politics. If you want to talk about it in the context of like social cohesion, as we've been saying, like the civitas, what is the mechanism by which we will refine or kind of improve our social, our social state in terms of aspiring towards a state in which everybody's needs are met and everybody is equally kind of fulfilled and is an understanding that resistance is intrinsic to that is the idea that resistance is generative in that it creates the conditions for understanding what you're missing, what you're lacking. Um, you know, like that structure of it's only when you're subjected to five years of a government with different ideologies and politics to, your, to yours that you can potentially really begin to understand and invest in your politics and ideology. Um, it's a generative process. Um, Lucretius is, well, Epicurean and Lucretius' idea of the swerve, right? Through sort of like... Um, resistance and non-resistance that um things phenomena happen you know through uh the endless 
void of atoms flying for air, you know, things tend to happen through, uh, yeah. I guess the act of the swerve can be considered a resistance in itself. Mm. The more you can perceive it. Yeah, I think that's, that's an interesting idea. The idea that like resistance and genders kind of, or like non-homogeneity. So like things happening out of order, things happening, chaos essentially yeah, yeah, yeah. is is generative um difference difference is generative i think this this um speaks i think to um her her, it sounds a bit trivializing to call it an interest but her kind of uh, aesthetic pursuit of like realizing the importance of like uh female embodiment feminine embodiment the difference of the the resistance that um the feminine body experiences within a society that is structured to be straight white male cisgendered uh in kind of every way it's it's a society it's a sort of a society constructed out of social institutions and sort of cultural institutions that facilitate those individuals who are like that um and obviously, you know, this sort of speaks as well to like the uh, generative aspect of just sort of being a- anybody who doesn't fit into those categories, be that sort of a, a gendered in quote mark body or a racialized in quote marks body. Um, and the depth of the depth of kind of uh, understanding of how a society actually works when you are not uh, part of the group for which the society is, uh, you know, perfectly seamlessly constructed. Yeah. Um, this is, I think, in, in um, First Spontaneous... Uh, is it in that one? Yeah, First Spontaneous... Yeah, so in, in, it's in a hotel, sorry. Um, and she's talking about um, wanting to rest near the privacy of women, whereby privacy becomes this kind of uh incorporates the sense of being closed off but also the idea of containing something um alternative or ulterior or in some way um i mean i want i don't want to trivialize it again but it sounds like a sense of wisdom a sense of kind of understanding that is uh different from the sort of general kind of world understanding um and i think it speaks also to just like her interest in in colonialism but we can we can get to that if you want it was, a, it was interesting as well how she the the title of the poem is called a hotel and she feels like she has this sort of um privacy in a hotel it's like it, for me it just conflates the image of what a hotel is and what privacy is i mean maybe you know, that's just a bit of paranoia talking, but I just feel. No, like I think that's those two like image con- like images contrast each other very well, and I think that's what she's very good at in her poetry, just in general. So it, she says in first spontaneous horizontal restaurant, she says 
Lucretia says the soul, the speaking, the thinking force that flows through a girl is a part of life, not less than hand, foot or eyes are vital. And for me, that's just sort of, she's sort of like recomposing Lucretia as a woman, as woman or woman, you know, the singular or the plurality of women, you know, uh, as it, in, in, and it goes back, it always kind of relates back to the idea of Epicureanism change and the swerve. And because change is frequent, we change with it. So history can change and the views of history in a sort of like retrospective, uh, retrospective way will change because that's what it is. That's what the world is. It's full of change. I mean, that's what it is. You know, like. As in the, like the reflexive engagement with history, we're constantly reconstructing. As, as a person, as a singular being, as well as, you know, life of organisms together, you know, just us as a species on this planet, we always have this reflexive sort of cognition, you know, working with and against each other, maybe sometimes for the best and sometimes for the worst, you know? Yeah. I think that's also intrinsic to what I was trying to say about, just to briefly give it another go, trying to say about language earlier is this idea that Mm. it's a system that, um, you know, in its most rudimentary sense, it kind of served those purposes I was discussing earlier to mediate between the physical individual and the world. But it has, as we have kind of evolved, as we have evolved in our physical, so we first start using language and it is a huge advancement as, as a tool. It enables us to form societies which enable us to, you know, that kind of um, exponential development in human intelligence essentially from beginning to use language because it can it massively uh, perpetuates and speeds up our sharing of understanding and our ability to survive essentially and that in turn changes the world around us which in turn changes the conditions that we are interacting with as physical individuals which then further necessitates further development of more kind of more nuanced and different language um, and this, I think, is just basically her sort of understanding of how, of the deep connection between uh, the evolution of the physical form and the evolution of language, as in that quote that um, that you just read, the, the allusion to um, the speaking, thinking force that flows through a girl is part of life and not less than hand, foot or eyes. Like it's literally an extension of those, but just in another realm, in the mental realm. And so, but it's because it's not physical, <laughs> it has the capacity to evolve much more rapidly. It can be much more fluid. And so we have this kind of spiraling inward self-perpetuation of like the complexities of language and conceptualization. I think basically, yeah, she's, it's a massively complex kind of issue, but she's, I think this is something that she's really like interested in. Have you ever heard of the, the guys, um, these two, one of them was a philosopher. One of them was a neuroscientist, uh, both from Chile, I think. And they called it the Santiago theory. And it's the idea that language is being, you know, it's because what is, you know, being or like, you know, language is cognitive because what is cognition? bar the fact that external stimuli 
hit the body or whatever, you know, you reflect on it. We process it. And you, you uh, change with it, you know, when it happens, you know, you, that's what cognition is. To, so cognition, that, that, that in turn then makes language a sort of living thing, an entity outside of this sort of like phenomenological, phenomenological body of the human. And uh, is a sort of like, you know, Heidegger thinks that like technology was a sort of thing that was always there um, that humans have utilised rather than created you know and it's the same with language i think language has always been there and it is forever changing and manipulating how we look at the world and how we look at language it's not just this sort of like one-way street it's this mm. uh you know highway <laughs> going both yeah you know? like that is what uh like language seems to be and it's this sort of like or what they call it, auto autopoiesis, poiesis. This sort of like, you know, poiesis is the idea of like change through external si- uh, stimuli, like changing, but like, you know, auto in front of it. And it's sort of like it changes on itself with its own being, you know. Reflexive system that. that... It's a sort of like cybernetic, you know, feedback loop. You know, you're always going to be learning and expanding from like. Yeah external stimuli and reflecting and then you know changing from that you know it's again it um it makes me think of again to sort of to 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 talk about to quote michael s judge he talks about how avant-garde literature specifically its kind of purpose is to destroy the concept of specialist language Hmm. if you kind of take the assumption that all language contains some nuance of experience that it can convey, then the idea of some language that belongs to some groups of society, you know, by specialist language, I mean kind of scientific terminology, political jargon, all of that kind of thing. Um, if you, if you exclude those kinds of uh, those, those areas of vocabulary and those areas of linguistics from uh, not even necessarily mainstream usage, but just from aesthetic usage, from poetry, essentially, yeah. then you massively limit the kind of realms of experience that can be accessed by people. Mm. Um, uh, and it kind of, it relates to, um, I think, her interest in in colonialism and the way that um, she's interested in the suppression of, regional and local languages in favor of national languages um and the the global and how that kind of maps onto the the, repre- the repression of local knowledges in favor of centralized knowledge um the idea that i mean it's it kind of gets deep deeper at the root of kind of a sort of metaphysical basis of the the, the deep wrongness of colonialization and, and sort yeah. of homogenization and centralization because it's it's a suppression of you know the marginalization of other languages equates to the marginalization of aspects of of being Mm. that can only kind of enrich anyone who is able to access them um it sounds like a bit of a a trite point but i think it's (laughs) um, most poets who i've been researching into recently especially modern ones 
want to have this sort of like encyclopedic sort of view of history and we're you know this all together sort of like one organism of history you know as um this is a very like whiteheadian idea isn't it where he thought that uh through the philosophy of organisms reality is a process of multiplicities of processes it's not static is it not static material objects the reality is a process it's always moving and being you know it's not it's becoming sorry it's not being it's always becoming and um so the self like the human self of us becoming the self is an occasion of experience made up from its past prehensions uh or past occasions of experiences so it's not like the history of the the of humans it, it lives on within us as a sort of uh becoming as a sort of like you know forward movement a sort of like wheel you know just like buddhism sort of like idea you know like uh entities are always are in a process of becoming we are constantly creating ourselves and the world through our experience and our relationship with it you know we it's always and it comes back to that idea of language as well. You know, language is a sort of like highway going both ways. It's the same with being, you know, it's all these things have these sort of similarities. But I think it's like we can, we can, lang- the using language constantly reinscribes in us the events and kind of experiences that gave rise to those, to those kinds of language. Mm. Um, and, and forces a renegotiation with it. It's like you said, it's, if language is a map of the history of kind of human experience, um, then it's a map that we're constantly carrying and scribbling all over and redrawing every time we look at it and use it. It's, it's, it is the medium of the reflexivity that you were just talking about. You know, this idea that language is a sort of like, you know, sedimentary thing. It kind of reminded me of like palimpsests where, you know, people, over time would just write over other pieces of ancient writing using it and just having loads of friends who are artists, you know, they would go around and find sort of, uh, you know, used canvases that, you know, people who are, have a bit more um, money yeah. <laughs> would chuck out yeah. and, you know, they would pick them up and then reuse them. And this sort of like idea of language being like that, you know, you utilize what you have, and what you can get, you know, like it's always this, you know, this sort of like entomologi- entomological idea of uh, language and then, you know, transfused onto painting or like written word, you know, this idea. Yeah. But I mean, it's almost more like a kind of uh, graffiti kind of thing, I guess, you know, uh, palimpsests, I guess. They're all like, you know, this whole like idea of like reusing and using language the same you, know, you can easily just pick up something and drop it you know uh, it's almost naive to say it but there is in a way you know like the amount of works and like like you know written stuff that we couldn't have uh read that have been just you know at the time someone was just like oh yeah it's fine whatever like clay tab mm. sumerian you know you would just have this clay tablet and you you know do your cuneiform into it 
and then what you would do is just wipe it away and then just use it again and uh a lot of the time there's this kind of weird image like a lot of the cuneiform we have been found in sort of burnt houses and that's what would harden the clay so it's like mm. language itself has been sort of uh fossilized through death as a very unnatural means yeah 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 so like you know the house would burn down and the language the tablet itself would sort of crystallize and then you know we would find it through some sort of like archaeological dig and you know we'd you know through sort of like uh testing of the dirt and stuff you would find out there's ash and the blah 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 the, the village the hut was burnt down and i like that idea of how language like some of the oldest language we have is only found through the idea of someone's house burning down you know or the idea of the most worst thing to ha- like the, the the most horrible thing to happen to a family then but an, ex- an extension of like history it's been like the most profitable thing for us yeah i think because it speaks to the fact that i mean by the very nature of language like we were just saying it's this constant generative process it's constantly self-proliferating and constantly building on itself and building on itself and building on itself that these palimpsests naturally emerge and by its own very you know language is a means of resisting the loss resisting your cultures and your beliefs being lost but it is also by its very nature it poses the risk of submerging your of drowning out your um your your exact well whatever it is that you're trying to convey with your language your culture um the idea of um again it just makes me think of that that bit that little bit in her uh, first spontaneous horizontal restaurant a language suspends itself as if falling you know the moment that we're using language is this kind of snapshot the moment in which we use it is this one strata of language that is infinitely complex and yet language kind of has this perpetually falling aspect yeah. whereby it's just piling and piling and piling on itself and back into history and like higher and higher, the further forward we progress into history, the higher the yeah. palimpsest, yeah. the layers of the palimpsest grow. And it just it, thinking about the kind of colonialist aspect of it, the idea of cultures being kind of intentionally or otherwise suppressed and the need to, um, need to save cultures from so that's out not save that's a horrible way of putting it but like the need to um try and avoid and prevent cultures from being lost and so intentionally submerged but the kind of almost inevitability of that with time and the pro- prolongation of of human being and language yeah. usage sort of like off topic here i was um i always heard poems as well uh she she does something like with the everyday that I feel like a lot of modern writers have been kind of doing and sort of like uh, making the everyday more uh sort of like fantastical but not in a sort of a surreal way just you know making the everyday object be more alive than it is and there's a mm. word called uh hierophany where it, 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 it sort of is like the manifestation of the sacred. And I feel like she does that quite a bit within sort of the everyday objects in her poems. They would be 
they turn into these sacred objects, like these relics of writing and uh, relics, well, relics of uh, being, I guess, relics of the just the everyday, you know, the everyday. And I think that's what, you know, good writing can be, you know, an aspect of is sort of like doing that. Very much so. That's definitely her... Um... Her, her aesthetic is is her philosophy takes into account the fact that the minutiae of um, the minutiae of systems the and the aesthetic minutiae of systems determine our mm. ways of being and our ways of seeing the world and our ways of being in the world just as uh, significantly as the huge overarching structures of like politics and and society and I think that's that deification that you were talking about like she understands that it's like that micro politics kind of thing like day-to-day politics she understands that the way that your wallpaper makes you feel might influence how you vote (laughs) like in it's a silly example but like, like realistically you know dispositions are provided to us and facilitate not provided to us yeah. facilitated and potentially engendered by aesthetics by the minutiae of aesthetics and by the minutiae of the everyday and that is just as significant as the grand philosophical and uh, political narratives of our time yeah for sure it's also how um sort of like external stimuli can also uh kind of contort your subconscious i guess and how you're saying you know your wallpaper as a choice of just pure aesthetic pleasure or whatever can change your sort of like a voting yeah it can change your whole worldview it, it goes back to what we were saying about language i mean like you know the most flippant throwaway comment can contain an entire cultural history within it yeah yeah <laughs> and, and implicate an entire cultural history within it um kind kind and 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 will inform an entire cultural history to come because it's it's part of the complex nuances of the the current situation um kinds of ornament a change mm. looking the most minute parts of your actions and behaviors and not even actions and behaviors just the things around you yeah. will have a hugely influential impact on on the worldview and the way that you live. I think this is another cool, another kind of cool uh, bit of like a kind of etymology that she talks about is like the complex and complexion. Mm. You know, when she's talking about... She talks about blue and the colours. Exactly, when she's talking about like the humours and... um, you know the black bile, yellow bile, blood, etc., etc., and and how like this is kind of what I was trying to get at earlier when I was talking about the idea that like um, even our more complex kind of conceptions, concepts relate back to or at least structured by our understanding of our relation to our body. Mm. So like the idea of complexion, as in like how you look, literally referring to your complex of humors and the equilibrium between them. Um, and uh, and like humour itself like being a reference to the humour like you, your state of mind being affected by the balance between your humours um, but just I really like when she you know when she starts talking about the dura etching 
she whips out in melancholia yeah i did i did yeah. pick her up yeah 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 and she's talking about the pathology of melancholy which is really cool and like the the idea of like um there's a there's a theme going on in this <laughs> subtextual theme somehow what the, the podcast <laughs> Yeah, no, I know. Well, this is the dude, like... It's full of melancholy as well. I did, I should have mentioned, but I was like, yeah, it's very melancholic, a lot of it as well. Yeah. Yeah, dude. But she um, she starts, like, picking apart all of the... Because um, you know how the idea is, like, it's the it's like the woman weeping and she's surrounded by all of these kind of, like, oh, objects. Symbols and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah. And, like, but she starts to kind of unpack it in such a way of, like... I was like, it's like, it's, it, this is like the furniture of melancholy. This is like the kind of structure that constitutes melancholy. But then it kind of starts to become the, the melancholy is itself uh, a pathology of complexity mm. of like, because she's sort of talking about all of these um, objects in the scene. Like, you know, like you're saying like the kind of um, the ladder for rational aspiration and the, the I think there's probably a globe in there because it usually would be of like you know kind of cartography magic square the sort of the magic square exactly and it becomes this thing of like intellectual uh, disciplines are kind of, she's being crowded by the sort of tools of intellectual disciplines and she is kind of being brought asunder by the over complexification of it like the over uh, over proliferation of knowledge into systems, self-referential and cross-referential systems. And that is melancholy. Um, that is kind of the inner nature of melancholy. Um, uh, like, yeah, the sort of this idea of like complexity as a pathological, uh, as, as a pathology, having this sort of, this this re- reality like the reality in the emotional realm of complexity is melancholy um and this again there's a bit there's a quote in uh uh in a, a hotel the worn out house walls humming the repose of systems the modest light and it's like this <laughs> i mean the word i'm going to find is melancholy this idea of like the house being the sort of the, the the modern house that one would live in now is this kind of node within these vast systems, you know, like the electrical grid and the flow of capital and all of these vast different kinds of systems and the home, the house is the center of it. But like this idea of it being just sort of humming with the repose of systems, like this kind of deeply sort of, empty and contentless space within these sort of systems. Um, it just, it was making me think of um, that, uh, not Baccalaude, Baudrillard, um, when he's talking about like catastrophe is the total proliferation and the total homogenization of a system, um, like a political system or systems of power and systems of knowledge, when they become completely ubiquitous like completely uh all present and all pervasive to the extent that you don't even notice them anymore yeah like that you would not even notice systems of power around you that is catastrophe that is like the definition of 
social catastrophe because it it's the death of it's the death of history but like yeah 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 with meaning this time like um and it just made me think of that like this idea of the melancholic um sense of emptiness when when systems become so <laughs> ubiquitous uh in in a social sense i mean uh and in a cultural sense when you're so inundated with the the flows and the structures of a specific system of well i just looked up entomology of complex of what, mm. and it says the latin completus completus as a noun meant a surrounding embracing connection and relation psychological senses of connected group of repressed ideas was established by young but yeah this idea of like interrelations is kind of what you were talking about being oppressive or like not if not oppressive then in some way kind of like ennui like the 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 perception of this sort of lack or this this emptiness which I guess is is sort of what Baudrillard's talking about and the idea of like when say like cultural cultural ideologies become completely ubiquitous and totally all pervasive it leaves no room for development or even interest anymore and so it kind of necessitates or like induces this necessary state of not not even pessimism I think ennui is the most appropriate word like yeah yeah something fundamental missing yeah um which is potentially what the kind of woman in the melancholy graving is sort of like reclining and declining towards. I guess when that was a, a like, you know, a sketched out in that painting or whatever sketch, I guess, when that was made, it was um, during the Enlightenment. You have to, you know, within that, talk about the Enlightenment and that because that was such a big thing to happen within the progress of history and um, the Copernican idea that you know the world revolves around the sun we it, it kind of destroys the sort of like anthropological idea the sort of like solipsism I think I like what you're saying though about like the the idea of like yeah the Copernican revolution mm. being itself potentially quite a uh, melancholic event because like you said it's it's removing this whole uh obviously anthropocentric but also kind of uh deific deified um worldview whereby where's meaning imbued by the system that we have now we have this more more radically in a lot of ways more radically transcendent system whereby we're starting to understand that we are literally part of a system that extends to the far reaches of the universe that's like that's that, that is by its definition a transcendent concept yeah. transcendent of the individual that's a, a good thing necessarily or like you know we need to bring it back down to a sort of like imminence like uh that's what plato did you know plato talked about the forms and we have this transcendental perf like the perfect sort of uh objects of life you know mm. out there they're the 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 forms of the earth and they're transcendent transcendental and um 
what happened was that that took off in a sort of religious way mm. well and this sort of like neoplatonists took that idea and then everything from there became transcendental right because the perfection of the world is out of the world itself with these are mere sort of like representations of the forms what we have mm. on this planet well i think what's beautiful about like what at least robinson and why she loves lucretius and epicurus is because lucretius wasn't a uh, sort of like transcendentalist i don't think i think he was a uh, he was a philosopher of imminence you know yeah in a way very much so like uh, in a sort of like very complex way but you know I think what she's doing with with everything with like what I've been saying about her conception of language is that it kind of operates counter to this platonic idea of ideal forms that you know linguistic terms and concepts represent some higher heavenly realm that we are aspiring you know the idea of aesthetic forms contained within language that are the perfected pure form of that thing that anything that exists in the real world is aspiring to she kind of completely sort of denounces that conception of of language and potentially what of, of art at least of linguistic art in everything that i've been saying about like the idea of language is purely pragmatic yeah and and having evolved out of states of embodiment and like the experiences of resistance in embodiment and like you said the experiences of chaotic and disruptive events in history is where language comes from it doesn't it's a it's a kind of it's a again i'm sorry that quote and a language suspends itself as if falling yeah it's this deeply kind of uh fallible and organic and human thing that we could just fucking flop over like a, yeah. like a human at any point um it's not aspiring upwards. It's just trying to keep itself up along with us along the way. Yeah. It's suspended as if it's about to just fall down at any time because humans were about to fall down at any time. I guess that's the, the sort of like imminence of it. You know, it's, it's very human in a way. Also. Exactly. Imminence doesn't necessarily mean human. It just means uh, literally the opposite of transcendental. It, it, it comes back to the earth the planet the the self being you know which is still yeah and it, it, and Im embodiment and yeah. being on earth as a as a body i'm trying to find there was a quote her like her, her construction of of language and her conception of language it ties the mind of the human to the earth uh and there's a quote that um I think I think it was uh, it came up in in that talk uh, the gym gymantic slumber I think it was in the introduction the man that was introducing it talks about how she's tied to the earth as a site for inhabitation and thinking huh. I mean if that's not imminence then I yeah. don't know what is like for sure 